I want us to uh, remember a little bit what went on last Sunday as far as the message is concerned. I'd like to review a little bit to make sure that uh, uh, we don't forget what God was trying to teach us and, um, and, and hopefully be putting that into practice. But uh, last Sunday, we talked a little bit going through Gospel of Mark, of course, and we talked a little bit about God's plan. We looked at Mark chapter 4, and we discovered um, basically that if Jesus is who he says he is, then we have nothing to fear. Uh, and, and we read through that story in, in verse 35 through, through verse 41 about the disciples getting in the boat and joining him going across the, the Sea of Galilee. And we discovered five truths about God's plan uh, as well as not only for them, but also for us as uh, disciples today. And uh, first, we, we realized that his plan may be puzzling. <laughs> we might not figure out what that plan is exactly, uh, as far as what, what, what's the meaning behind it, but we, we need to follow it anyway. And, and the other side, whatever the other side is for you, we need to realize that we need to trust God in, in this plan that, again, might be puzzling to you, but realize that he is a good, good father. He is going to take care of you. He's going to provide all along the way. And so we're called to follow Jesus' plan, even when it doesn't make sense. And we must go where Jesus goes, even if it's to the other side. Um, there are those other sides in our lives that we just need to cling to God and realize, okay, he's with us. <laughs> so we should not have anything to fear. Also, we realize that his plan often includes problems. And we looked at that, the Sea of Galilee was uh, basically the problem for the disciples, crossing over this, and it was kind of um, treacherous, of course, too, the, the storm coming up. Uh, but we will realize here, too, that we shouldn't base our position in Christ by the storms that come our way. We are loved by God. He wants the best for us, and sometimes those storms that come, just they happen, and we go through them with God, and He is with us through those times. But we, we can't make life work like we want, but we can always draw near to God in those situations. And then uh, a third truth we learned about uh, last Sunday about his plan is that his plan comes with his presence. Jesus is with us in those difficult times. And uh, when he has a plan for us, for us, his presence comes along with that plan. Jesus didn't keep them from, from the storm, those disciples from the storm, but he went through it with them. He was in the boat. And he was with them through that storm. Uh, and so we need to realize, too, when God has a plan for us as disciples, he's going to be with us through it all as well. And uh, these storms that happen in our lives aren't sent to destroy us. They're sent to develop us, develop us closer in a relationship with him. And a fourth truth we learned about this last Sunday was that his plan demonstrates his power. When God reveals his plan to us, he's demonstrating how awesome and, and incredible he is in his power. Um, and it's in, interesting that the answer that Jesus gives the disciples about their question, do you even care that we're going to drown here? He demonstrated his power with, with the answer. And he calmed the sea. He, he, he calmed the wind and the storm and and we realize that what God creates, he also controls. And so whatever comes our way, we need to realize he's in control. 
he will deal with those storms of life in our lives to help us get through that, whatever it might be. And, uh, and then a fifth truth that we've, we've discovered last Sunday as well is that his plan always has a purpose. His plan always has a purpose. The greatest storm we discovered, too, wasn't on the Sea of Galilee among those uh, disciples, but it was in, the, in their souls. Because once they realized everything got calm, they thought, who is this guy <laughs> that, he, that the wind and waves obey him? And so their, their, their fear went from fear of the st- storm and the sea to a reverent fear of God, of Jesus. Who is this man? And we also, too, need to realize as well that as, uh, as, as Jesus is, is with us, that there's always a purpose there. There's always an opportunity for us to realize how great God is in situations that we need to have uh, a healthy fear, an awe of him. And uh, the, those three, the, the, the three purposes that we, we find, too, as well behind the plans God has for us to deal with our fear, to grow our faith, and again, to increase our awe. Yeah, our, our, our reverent fear of him. So trust that those principles and ideas were able to sink in for you this last week and uh, that you're still chewing on that and allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you and direct you in that. Uh, we are going to look in chapter 7, and let me just quickly just tell you chapter 5 and 6, chock full of a bunch of things there that I just skipped over. The healing of a demon-possessed man, all the, uh, all the demons went into the herd of pigs, and they rushed down in the, in, in the water, and they died. Uh, Jairus' daughter, who was sick, and he wanted Jesus to come heal her, and, and he got interrupted by another woman who was sick, who touched him, who touched me, and he had to spend time with her. And then Jairus is going, come on, we need to go. My, my daughter's sick. And she died, and he brought her back. Anyway. All those things would have been wonderful to look at as well, too. Chapter 6, uh, he discovered that uh, back in his hometown in Nazareth, he didn't get much honor as a prophet. And he also, too, uh, sent out the, the 12 by twos and to go out and spread the news, healing and, and doing all those things that Jesus did, actually. He got some bad news as well, too. John the Baptist, he finally he succumbed to Herod's... Uh, wishes and in, in, in uh, he be, he get beheaded and uh, so he was killed um, and that's a horrible whole situation and story there as well too we also uh, will will miss where Jesus feeds the 5,000 another wonderful miracle there and how Jesus walks on the water and the response there that uh, the apostles have about that I skipped all that because like I said we're, we're scooting along to Easter and I want to make sure that we get to the end of mark by Easter and uh, so we scoot right on into chapter 7, which has some really good things as well, too, that I wanted to make sure that we um, identify and that we put into practice as well. I read a story about one day a teenager, a teenage girl, and maybe you've heard this story as well, too, noticed that her mother was cutting off the ends of a pot roast she was putting in the oven to cook for dinner. Uh, this seemed odd to her because there was more than enough room in the pot for the whole roast. So she asked her mom why she cut off the, the ends. And her mother replied, well, I don't know. It's just what mom always did. Oh, okay. Well, determined to find the answer to this mystery, she asked her grandmother, who said, I don't know either. 
Uh, my mother just always did it that way, so I did it too. So she went to her great-grandmother, asked the reason she cut the ends off, and she said, well, we had, a, had very small ovens in those days, and the pot roast didn't fit in the oven unless I cut off the ends. <laughs> so there was a purpose way back then, and everyone else just did it because that's the way it's been done before without any question. So sometimes we, we simply do things because that's the way it's always been done before. And if anything has taught us in the last two years of ministry and church life, that isn't so. <laughs> Just because we've done it before doesn't mean we're going to be doing it these days. Uh, COVID has interrupted that line of thought drastically. And so we are trying to rebuild that and move forward. And there will be some things that we've done before that we might not be doing ahead. And I think COVID has given us a good pause on things to figure out, is this really worthwhile? Is this really serving a purpose? Why do we really cut the ends off of the pot roast and put it in the, in, in the oven? Uh, we need to figure this out. And so we move forward trying to, trying to figure those things out. So today's message is about traditions and what it takes to break from them. Now, I'm not saying traditions are wrong, but we need to guard against that because sometimes we can fall into a rut and we can find ourselves doing things just because that's the way we've done it before. And in the religious realm as well, too, they can cause us to end up defending a tradition at the expense of the right concept of following God. So we need to be on guard to make sure that traditions, legalism as well too, doesn't get in, in our way in being able to have a right conception of who God is and what he has for us. So in Mark chapter 7, we're going to look at the first 23 verses here. And uh, Jesus was confronted by a group of Jewish legalists because his disciples didn't follow Jewish extra biblical rules. And uh, in his reply, Jesus laid down one of the most important markers of the Christian faith that was to reverberate through, throughout all history. So we're going to look at that today. And, and uh, there are an outline here that you can probably kind of follow a little bit using some alliteration to help us remember the, the situation in each of these sections. So I kind of got uh, pastoral here a little bit as far as preaching and these different uh, uh, outline topics, but the first five verses, we're going to see here about a caustic confrontation, a caustic confrontation. Follow with me in uh, these first five verses. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Stop there at that verse. Uh, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were what are called legalists and uh, people who meticulously kept man-made rules in order to keep, uh, keep them from breaking God's law, 
given to Moses. Now, this is the first time Jesus was uh, accosted by the, the legalists, as you remember. Uh, it reared its ugly head uh, a few chapters ago. Disciples were picking grain in, uh, uh, during the Sabbath in Mark chapter 2. And again, over Jesus healing on the Sabbath in Mark chapter 3. And so these legalists were going, mm, I don't know if that should be done. Why are you doing this? This is against the rules. And it all seems kind of strange to us 2,000 years later, but this was a big deal in Jesus' day. Um, and and, and the, all the commotion here was that the, the legalists were fence markers, fence makers. They, they, they marked out an area of the law, and they wanted to guard it. They wanted to guard people from um, messing up. And, and so... Uh, the Mishnah, a collection of Jewish oral laws, says tradition is a fence around the law. And some of those then legalists took that a little bit too far. They built up fences around behavior to make sure people kept God's laws. And the original idea made sense, and it is wise for us to, to set up some limits on our behavior on things. Uh, otherwise, you know, you know what, what you can handle and the temptation that comes your way. And so you realize that you need to put up some boundaries, some barriers, some fences around some areas so you don't go wandering in there. And so you, you also do the same thing as well, too. So the original idea made sense. Um, but over time, the rules became burdensome to the point of being just ridiculous. And I mentioned some of those Sabbath rules a couple Sundays ago uh, about how uh, they regulated their behavior during that time. And the Sabbath rules were just one issue to the legalists who wanted to fence the law. The biggest issue in, in this Mishnah had to do with clean, clean, uh, cleanness, being able to be clean and, and, and making sure you don't touch anything unclean and, and keeping yourself all clean. It involved a lot of rules around washing hands and other articles. God's law only stipulated that the priests had to wash their hands, but these legalists made it mandatory for all Jews. If it's good for the priests, it's good for everyone. So, and, and so they all had to wash their hands and keep themselves clean, just to make sure they didn't slip up and disobey the law. And they extended, again, extended to washing of all sorts of utensils, something the law of God said nothing about. <laughs> now, hand washing is a good practice. Uh, we do need to make sure we're doing that. And if if we've learned anything these last couple of years, I, I suppose it's hand washing. And uh, if Lee was here, we'd be able to sing the happy birthday twice while we're washing our hands and know that we've washed our hands sufficiently. Um, but with the Jews, it was not just a good medical practice. Hand washing and washing dishes and cups and pots and pans and other vessels was a matter of moral purity. It had to do with morals. It, to not... To not do these things made these articles unclean in a religious sense in their eyes. For example, washing, washing after going to the marketplace was of special importance because at the market, they might come into contact with those Gentiles. And all Jews know the Gentiles were unclean. And so they might touch some things at the marketplace. And if they did, and uh, a good... A good law-abiding Jew would bring that article home, they better wash that article, whatever it might, that, that item, 
because who knows, might have touched that. And not that it would be all dungy and gringy and icky. It just was unclean. And they needed to ceremonially wash that. As well as their hands, uh, they need to make sure that whatever they touched there, they, they washed their hands after they were, they were out there and, and doing those things. So all this stuff, uh, again, nothing really that the Bible intended to have happen. But uh, by the time of Jesus, so many aspects of everyday life were fenced and double fenced. <laughs> they keep people from doing anything wrong, watching out. Uh, it just it just caused a whole whole burdensome life for people. And so the idea of inner purity of the heart had boiled down to a system of external washing. Make sure your hands are clean. Make sure your things are clean, and then you will be pure as well. And what was so horrible was that the religious legalists placed these various rules as equal to and even at times above the law of God. So the legalists asked Jesus in verse 5 why his disciples did not follow these rules. It's very clear. You should be doing these things if you call yourself clean, call yourself pure, call yourself close to God. You should be doing these things. I wonder, could it be that we have become fence builders in our journey as followers of Jesus? Unnecessarily? (laughs) Have we created or followed rules that seem to be above God's rules? I think it's a good thing to evaluate on a regular basis. Then if you look at verses 6 through 8, we see another in the outline here that I have for us is a concise condemnation. Concise condemnation. Verses 6 through 8, he replied, Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. So in verses 6 and 7, Jesus replied by quoting Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And this was basically a slap in the face of the religious legalists. First, he calls them hypocrites. Not exactly the best way to win friends. Uh, You come up to somebody and start your conversation that way. But according to the dictionary, a hypocrite is a person who pretends to have beliefs or practices which he or she does not actually possess. A person who pretends to have beliefs or practices which he or she does not actually possess. And as used in the Bible, the term comes from uh, from ancient Greek theater, where one actor would often play two parts. When saying something humorous, he would hold up a mask with a smiley face. When playing a tragic part, he would hold up a mask with a sad face. And a good actor could imitate the speech, mannerisms, and conduct of the character he was portraying. The word literally means one who hides behind a mask. And I guess in a sense, coming up here at at Maddie's wedding, I suppose I could probably play that hypocrite type of role, because not only will I be the father giving away the bride, but I'll also be the pastor doing the ceremony. And so I'll be kind of doing this thing back and forth. We'll see how that goes. might be a little comical, but anyway... Um, I've never been in that position before, so we'll see what happens. But uh, uh, hypocrisy, though, is pretending to be something you are not and have no intention of being. You put on a show, basically. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites 
because they worship God for the wrong reasons. They, their, their worship was not motivated by love, but by a desire to gain profit, to, to appear holy, and to increase their status. Look at me. Look at how pure I am. Look at how well I follow God. We grow tired of people saying one thing and living something that's completely opposite, don't we? We probably have had our fill of that in the last couple of years. If you look at the political realm, you've probably had your fill of it a long time ago. But it's kind of easy to spot a hypocrite, but not as easy to maybe identify ourselves as being one. We can see it in other people pretty quick. But if we turn the tables and ask ourselves, are we that way? It gets, no, uh, oh, not us. It's pretty easy. No, I don't think so. I don't do that. But let me help you out a little bit to help you see if you are possibly becoming hypocritical. It might be in, uh, in the form of you might be a redneck if. <laughs> you might be a hypocrite if you pay more attention to reputation than to character. You might be a hypocrite. You might be a hypocrite if you carefully follow certain religious practices while allowing your hearts to remain distant from God. You might be a hypocrite. You might be a hypocrite if you, if you emphasize your virtues and the sins of others. You might be a hypocrite. Those things might help us evaluate, at least those three things, might help us out a little bit. If we, if we are in that hypocritical stage. And then his quote from Isaiah was a condemnation from God, from, uh, from God of God's people in Isaiah's day. And Jesus applies it to these Pharisees here. Then Jesus stated that their rules were merely man-made, no matter how well-intentioned, they simply had no biblical authority. Bible doesn't, doesn't, doesn't say these things need to happen in, in the way that you are talking about. And the Pharisees added hundreds of their own petty rules and regulations to God's holy laws. And then they tried to force people to follow these rules. These men claim to know God's will in every detail of life. They're still, still today religious leaders uh, who add rules and regulations to God's word causing much confusion among believers. Can't help but remember a, a skit that had been done at youth camps before. Maybe you've seen it as well, where a, a guy has this uh, tag, uh, sign that he's wearing and says, unbeliever. Someone comes to him and basically, and it's all, no words are being said. And, and basically the guy has a Bible, and he points to the Bible, and basically he's sharing his faith. And then the guy goes, oh, okay. And the other guy then turns his, his sign around and says, Christian. And then, so he's like, okay, wearing the sign, I'm a Christian. And that guy goes walking off, the, the Christian standing there. And another person comes up to him, looks at him, and goes, oh, no, 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 no. And he kind of fix him, fixes him up. This is, you know, how you need a dress, basically. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll do that. And then he, then that person walks off. And then another guy comes in and goes, oh, don't, 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 yeah. So don't talk something, don't use some words, don't do these things. And so the guy's, oh, okay. And so he's kind of standing there a little bewildered. 
And then that guy goes walking off. Another person, so you got like three people coming in. And pretty soon, this guy who's wearing a sign that says Christian is just all just discombobulated and not sure what to do, how to act, whatever. And then finally, one last person comes in, and he looks at the guy and goes, Whoa. and he looks at his sign and, be, and is able to put another sign on him, and it says, confused. <laughs> and sometimes what happens is that we get all this input from people, what you should and should not do and everything else. And instead of being able to follow Jesus, the follower of Christ, we get confused because of all the different rules that are out there and all the different things that the regulations and, and all that's out there that people add to God's, God's, God's word. You can't do this, can't do that. And some of you probably realize uh, and, and lived in this back in the day. I didn't. But I heard about it. You know, face cards were not a good thing to play with. Um, making sure you didn't, didn't uh, no, no TV. Don't, don't have a TV in your house and stuff like that. Certain music you should and should not listen to. Again, some externals. I'm not saying it's not a good thing. We need to have fences, like I said. But sometimes we put more fencing around it and causing people to be really confused about what they should be doing or not doing and why. We need to be careful about that. But these, these Pharisees, they added those things. And today there, there, there are Religious leaders that do the same thing as well, too. But it is idolatry to claim that your interpretation of God's word is as important as God's word itself. It isn't, thus saith Jim. <laughs> it should be, thus saith the Lord, and follow him. It's especially dangerous to set up unbiblical standards for others to follow. We need to be careful. Do you want to avoid the way of the Pharisees? Then look to Christ for guidance about your own behavior and let him, let God, lead others in the details of their lives. So we live together, we help each other, we move forward together, but God is particular in talking to someone else about some details in their lives that they need to take care of that doesn't involve you. Convictions, right? And we need to follow them. But for us to put our convictions on other people, that doesn't work out. And then we, we uh, get into the danger zone of joining the Pharisees. Verses 9 through 13. 9 through 13, we see a contrasting correction here. A contrasting correction. Jesus gave them an example of what he was talking about. And it's the tradition of Corban, as he says. In verses 9 through 13, says, And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban. That is a gift devoted to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. In the Ten Commandments, in several other places in the Law of Moses, God clearly taught that a person was to honor his father and mother. And today, that is still true. Maddox? Yeah, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> oh, Amy, I'm so sorry. <laughs> We're praying for you. Yeah. 
I've got your attention now, don't I? <laughs> That's okay. Honoring your mother and your father and being able to, oh, yeah. Do I need to wake someone else up here today too? No, I'm just kidding. Um, honoring your mother and your father, being able to do that. And this included the responsibility to also provide good financial support and, and suitable care for their parents in their old age. And Jesus makes this very clear by quoting that fifth commandment. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law are probably nodding in agreement to this. Yeah, we got that. You're right, Jesus. We know about that. Until Jesus exposes their hypocrisy in verses 11 through 13 and, and with the phrase, but you say. <laughs> and so this, here's this contrasting correction. This is what God says, but you guys say this. Tell me. What should we follow? They were like those who say, I know what the Bible says, but God just wants me to be happy. Um, actually, if you ever hear yourself use the word but after referring to the Bible, you should hear alarms going off because whatever you say next is going to be unbiblical <laughs> and therefore wrong. I know what God's word says, but yeah. So be careful. Don't go there. Now, here's what's going on. If someone pronounced something Corbin, it became sacred and then couldn't be used to help care for parents. So, uh, Bob and Sharon, I don't know. <laughs> if Bobby were to say, I'm sorry, my car is Corbin, I cannot offer you rides anymore. Because it's given to God. Sorry, you're on your own. That would be a problem. Now, I know that wouldn't happen, of course. But that would be a problem. And it, you know, it was like a deferred gift that was pledged to the temple. But in many cases, it was never given. It was never given. And, and since Numbers chapter 30, verse 2 warns us, warns against breaking a vow, once someone declared something Corbin, they could never change their mind. I made, I made it Corbin. It's devoted to God. Sorry. You'll have to find some other way. It was a pretty convenient way to look spiritual and yet get out of one of God's clear commands. Honor your mother and father. If you look at verse 12, they not only gave people an out if they didn't want to care for their parents, they went a step further and actually prohibited them from doing anything for them. Quite a contrast to the strong words we find in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, where it says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What's worse than an unbeliever? <laughs> I wouldn't want to go there. And in verse 13, we see that their tradition was wiping out the word of God. And this wasn't the only time this happened because Jesus said, and you do many things like that. So this was an ongoing thing. This happened a lot. It's easy for us, though, to pile on these legalistic hypocrites. But I wonder what this passage might be saying to us as a church or to us as individuals as well. What kinds of things do we do as a church out of tradition, that might be more important than what Scripture says. That's why I think these last two years, as horrible as they have been, I think it's been great for the church to stop, take a pause, 
and evaluate the ministries we have. What are they serving? Why are we doing these things? And if there's a good biblical reason, then let's continue forward with it. I think we just, we as in the church, has, hasn't had that pause. And so if there's one thing we could be thankful for with COVID is that it put a pause on that to help us evaluate what is really important. And uh, not only in ministry, I'm sure also too in your lives as well too. Then we get into verses 14 through 18, and let me uh, get through here to the end. Uh, A critical clarification. A critical clarification. At first, for the crowd, verses 14 through 16, says, Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And that last verse, verse 16, might not be in your Bible because it says some early manuscripts have this. Some don't. So uh, if you see verse 15 and then verse 17, then read your little notes there in the bottom of your Bible, and it will, it will let you know. But if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. William Barclay said that this one statement was the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. If you didn't catch verse 15, you read it again. It's hard for us to understand how radical verse 15 was to the Jews of that day because we have the New Testament to enlighten us. They're God's word that way. And we go, oh yeah, we see that. But this was absolutely mind-blowing to the Jews in Jesus' day. In verse 15, Jesus said something shocking to people who have been taught their whole lives about the importance of keeping the outside looking good. Wash your hands, make sure everything's clean, make sure everything's ceremonially washed and clean because we want to be pure on the inside. This is radical because the religious thinking at that time was that if you could just stay far enough away from all things unclean, you'd be good before God. You're good to go. They had concluded that sin came about from external stuff like things you eat, things you touch, things you wear. And Jesus just blows this all up by showing that we're spiritually defiled because we are sinfully depraved. We are We are spiritually defiled because we are sinfully depraved. My fundamental problem is not my environment or my education or my upbringing. My problem is sin, and it resides in my heart. The heart of my problem is the problem of my heart. That's the issue. That's why outward things like education and politics and self-help programs Social reform and even religious practices are powerless to change the human heart. And then he turns to the core, the the disciples right there, verses 17 through 18. And as uh, as, as Jesus often does, he drives this radical teaching in the hearts of his people. In verse 17, we see that Jesus moves from the crowd to this core. And he says, says, after he had left the crowd and entered the house... His disciples asked him about this parable. Can can you just see the disciples among themselves? They're going, huh? This is different. (laughs) And so the disciples want to discuss this some more because they have never heard anything like this before. 
And in Matthew chapter 15, verse 15, we see that it's Peter who once again speaks up for the group. And I would think that maybe the disciples are going, get Peter, have him ask him what this is all about. He can do it. And so the Savior responds to this question by asking them a question in verse 18. <laughs> are you so dull? <laughs> are you so dull? <laughs> in Ron Zinn's word, words, what do you do? <laughs> really? Are you so dull? The religious leaders don't get it, and the crowd is confused, but shouldn't his core group understand what he's saying? Shouldn't they? Maybe, I don't know, there's some things, though, that you read in God's Word, or you, you get from the Holy Spirit, and you're going, what? I don't understand that. And maybe the Holy Spirit's going, you should be getting this. Let's go through this again. And, and so this is what Jesus does. He clarifies this. And uh, so he goes on to say, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? So verse, the rest of verse 18 through verse 22, we see a, a, a correlating connection here, a correlating connection. In order to help them grasp this concept, not just intellectually, but also at a gut level, so to speak, uh, Jesus next uses an analogy that they would never forget. In verse 19, he says, For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. Now, the word for heart represents the inner nature of who we are. Now, some foods are not the best for heart health, uh, and some foods can mess with you, like when a lactose intolerant person pigs out on a quart of Briar's ice cream. I'll spare you the details, but it's just, let's just say it ain't a pretty sight. <laughs> some people have allergies or other health conditions that don't allow them to eat certain types of food at all. But Jesus isn't talking about this. In this brief anatomy lesson, we're reminded that when food enters the mouth, it goes into the stomach and then comes out the other end. It doesn't cause a person to be an you know, unclean heart. <laughs> and so some of you, and maybe some of you just kind of woke up on this one. Well, he's talking about going to the bathroom. Wow, that's weird. From the pulpit. Okay. Uh, the phrase out of his body is a polite and proper translation. Most, more, more literally, it means to go down into the toilet. It, it, it goes out of the body. After reporting what Jesus said here, Mark gives an editorial comment that would have unsettled those, uh, those from a Jewish background who were well-educated on what foods were considered clean and which were unclean. And we see this within the parentheses at the end of uh, verse 19. It says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Whoa. That is radical. And to people who, that were all about following detailed dietary, dietary laws, this was extremely radical. Jesus wasn't wiping out the laws from the Old Testament, though. He was fulfilling them. As stated in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So this radical repurposing of the dietary laws took a long time for people to accept because they were so used to avoiding anything unclean. Peter. Peter himself really wrestled with this, so much so that God gave him a vision of a bedsheet coming down from heaven, filled with animals who were unclean uh, on it. And Peter was hungry, and so God told him to kill and eat. You can read about it in Acts chapter 10. 
Peter pushes back by saying he has never eaten anything unclean. I, I don't do that, Lord. I, I, I don't eat anything unclean. And a voice from heaven then says, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times, which shows how reluctant Peter was. <laughs> Didn't get it the first time. Didn't get it the second time. Kind of got it the third time. It takes time for us to change our mindset when Jesus brings to us some new radical truth to our lives. And maybe you've encountered that in reading God's Word, and you go, oh, this changes everything. <laughs> wow. And so when we face those moments, give yourself some time because you have to adjust to those things. You look at verse 20, he went on, uh, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. And he's pivoting from the analogy to show that food that goes into a body is not what makes the person uh, clean, but what is expelled from the body as part of the digestive system is extremely unclean <laughs> and even repulsive. Uh, food is not dirty, but what is expelled is dirty. So the food is clean, what is expelled is not so much. Now that he has their attention, their total attention, because some of them are getting pretty grossed out here, Jesus now lists some specific examples in verses 21 through 22 to show that everything starts in our hearts. He says, For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts. Now, evil is not just out there. Evil is in here. The cesspool of sin is in the human heart, and evil thoughts literally just gush out of our insides. It's just, it's there. Just spend some time watching, listening, or even reading uh, the daily news, and you'll see how verses 21 through 22 really play out, become reality. One Bible commentator put it like this, we have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. I'm reminded of Ralph Waldo Emerson's quote. It says, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. Begins with the thoughts, begins with the heart. And what begins in our minds comes out in our attitudes and our actions. I've heard it said that decadent desires are often fleshed out in dark deeds. Decadent desires are often fleshed out in dark deeds. Jesus then spill, spells out a, a dozen sins here in verses 21 through 22. Twelve of them, actually, count them up. Twelve sins that have, have their beginnings on the inside and make their way to the outside. This list is extensive, but it, you know it's not exhaustive. <laughs> Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. I don't have time to define each one of those, but I encourage you to do a word study. And you'll find what these things are all about. Some of you already know some of these, but I encourage you to look that up. 
And then in verse 23, after he lists the 20, verses 21, 22, all those things, then in verse 23, we find, we find a convicting conclusion. A convicting conclusion. After exposing their hearts, the disciples are probably feeling pretty down. And Jesus doesn't move too quickly to bring relief because he wants to give them this convicting conclusion in verse 23. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So our problems are not the result of surrounding influences, although those could be easily blamed, but of internal evil that is already in our hearts. That's where problems come from. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure, who can understand it? You know, you put a three-year-old toddler on the floor with a bag of candy and then let two, two or three other toddlers approach him and see what happens. <laughs> is, he, is he going to say, here, let me share my candy with you? You're welcome. No, he's going to grab that as much as he can and say, mine. <laughs> no. You'll never see a class in any school entitled Lying 101. Nobody has to teach us to lie. We lie naturally. We have to be taught to tell the truth. We're sinful, and because of our sin, we are under God's divine judgment unless we have received God's grace provided by Jesus Christ. Everyone is capable of every sin on the list the Lord just laid out in verses 21 through 22. Everyone is capable. There is no heart where sin does not lurk. Romans chapter 3 tells us about that. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So really, the, the problem, the heart, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. In all traditions, in all legalism, in all life. So what do we do with all this? <laughs> kind of discouraging, isn't it? Think about all these things, but it depends on how you look at it. If you're, not, if you're into just trying to clean yourself up, ceremonially washing, do that, you'll be pretty discouraged. Because there's no amount of washing that can clean up the heart that you could do. But if you have no doubt about the depravity in your heart, realize, yeah, I'm a sinner saved by grace. You'll be ready for a new heart. If you realize, yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. The gospel will only be good news to you to the extent you're convinced about the bad news of the depravity of your heart. If you don't know your need, why would you need the gospel? <laughs> The good news is only good news in the context of really bad news. So what's the solution? Breaking with traditions by receiving a new heart. That's a solution. When confronted with, with his sinfulness and the horrors of his unholy heart, David prayed this in Psalm 51, verses 9 and 10. He said, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. A radical change of the human heart is what is needed. Trying to keep external rules, not going to do it. 
It's not going to cut it. Doing good works, starting to obey God's commands, uh, uh, all his commandments, doing religious rituals, improving yourself and getting an education, being a better person. None of these things will wipe the stain of sin away from your heart. None of them. There's only one answer. You must be born again. You must be transformed from the inside out. Jesus told Nicodemus, and he tells us today, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And a person is born again that is born from above into God's family when he recognizes his sinful condition and comes to Jesus Christ in faith to save him. Now, maybe you've received that. Maybe you are born again. You're living for Christ. But maybe your heart has grown a little bit hard under all the legalism and traditions you're trying to live under. And you need God to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Does your heart need the help of heaven? Does God need to intervene in your life in some way? Do you need God to give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you? Do you need God to remove from you your, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh? If so, then the invitation is for you. Spend some time in prayer with him. And allow him to do a little heart procedure on you. He's the great physician. He can take care of these things. He knows what you need. He knows where you're at. He knows if you have that heart that is hard against him or soft. He knows if you need a heart procedure going on. And to be able to do that, you need to recognize where you're at. And also to acknowledge what he can do. Now, what you can do, no amount of cleaning yourself up is going to do it. You know, let him do the work in you. Becky, Don, and Ron are going to come on up. Lead us in the last couple of songs. And this next song that we're going to sing, I believe can be your prayer. A prayer for you to be able to realize, yes, I need your, your, your touch in my life. And if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you in that way, I encourage you to make that your prayer. And if you're going to make that prayer, maybe, maybe while we're singing, maybe you just you, you stand up, acknowledging, yes, God, change my heart. Make it new. And if you want to do that and stand while we, while we, pray, uh, while we, while we sing, uh, and just acknowledge that, yes, this is, this is where I'm at, and God is going to do this for me, then I encourage you. You can do that while we sing.